So what I'd like to reflect on in the talk this evening is some of the dimensions and of desire and indeed even the paradox of desire. At some 2,600 years ago, the, the Buddha as a young man sat under the Bodhi tree and embarked upon what he later came to call a noble quest or a noble search. And I'm quite sure that all of us here have heard the stories of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree and it's it's very easy to kind of formulate these rather romantic kind of idealized notions. Um, a kind of a snapshot of a life as if nothing existed prior to this night under the Bodhi tree. When in reality, if you, if you look carefully at the Buddha's teaching and the stories of his life, of course it was an ongoing search over many years, an ongoing quest. And it was not actually even a search particularly unique to this one person, the Buddha. But instead, as we kind of open our eyes to the, the, you know, the very vastness of human endeavors and human quests, what we really see is how through time in countless women and men, young and old, really have embarked upon very similar searches to Siddhartha in different cultures, in different traditions, in cloisters, on mountainsides, alone, in the midst of families and in the midst of communities. And if we start to actually look at what are the sort of common denominators of what we call a search, what are some of the shared qualities within what we would call a a path or a quest, we see often this kind of what is called a noble search in this tradition is really a quest to understand what it means to live a life that feels authentic, that feels guided by an inner authority and wisdom, a quest to discover a way of living that is an embodiment of a a very natural dignity of a natural compassion and intentionality and integrity. And as we sit here right now, if you just really acknowledge it, I'm very aware of how many, countless, so many, so many, many beings in this world are doing exactly what we are doing here in this moment. Learning to be still, learning to listen inwardly, and perhaps even learning to examine some of the gaps that can so easily exist in our lives. The gaps between what we long for, what we seek for, what we aspire to, and then sometimes the actualities of our lives that somehow seem rather disconnected at times from those longings and aspirations. And I think those gaps for many of us are sources of great disappointment, 
I think it's also a source of great joy for us in our life. When we do see that our lives and our way of relating and way of being become more closely aligned, more closely knitted together with what we truly long for and value most deeply and aspire to. But it's no easy journey to bring together that those kind of moment-to-moment realities of our lives and our very aspirations and hopes and dreams and sense of possibility. It's no easy task. And I also think the recognition of the challenge of that task has been encountered and indeed recognized again by countless people on this path over centuries. Lal Dell is a young woman in 14th century India. She wrote a little about this. She says, to learn the scriptures is easy, to live them hard. The search for the real is no simple matter. Deep in my looking, the last words vanished, joyous and silent, the waking that met me there is. Now the Buddha's search, the Buddha's quest, like all what we would call noble searches, really began from a place of insight, of understanding. The Buddha saw so clearly in his own experience that the security and the peace and the freedom that he longed for was not going to be found in a world of changing and unstable conditions. He also saw so clearly for himself that a life permeated by aversion and by resistance was not a life of dignity or of freedom. And prior to his own awakening, the Buddha described his mind as often being filled with disquiet, a mind that he found to be unreliable, that he couldn't really trust in, where too many thoughts and mental states and emotions were acting as a kind of gatekeeper of his happiness. And he also saw how too many things in his world were acting as a gatekeeper of his happiness. And when he described how his mind was, I think we see some very clear similarities between our own mind. He described how he often felt to be swept along upon in his life upon waves of habit, of impulse, of reactivity. And he saw for himself that as long as he lived, locked in an inner belief in insufficiency and craving and a sense of lack, that he was equally going to be locked into a world and a heart that was agitated, where there was a diminished sense of possibility and where there was not the dignity and the inner reliance, completeness that he longed for. 
Now, these were the many of the core insights that actually brought the Buddha to the Bodhi tree. And I think there are also many of the core insights that actually often bring many of us to a cushion and to a retreat. And I think it is, it is often helpful for us to actually to spend some time to clarify for ourselves what it is that we are doing here. What it is that brings us here. What are we looking for? What are we aspiring to? What do we sense to be possible for us as a human being? And how much does that longing actually inform how we engage with being here, with being in the rest of our lives? Now when the Buddha described this path as a noble search, he described the seeking for the unborn, the supreme security from bondage, the search for freedom from sorrow and struggle, the search for a sublime peace. Now, I can imagine that when, when you might hear the word noble as describing your path, and your practice, it might sound a little pretentious. When you hear the word noble, it can often sound a, or a little hard to relate to when your, your experience today may have been, you know, you know, struggling just to find a breath or two, you know, kind of hanging around in sweatpants, looking forward to lunch, you know, lost in <laughs> fantasies, doing your best just to show up and stay awake. The word noble might sound just a little dramatic or overstated. Yet by all accounts, by all accounts, Siddhartha did not sit under the Bodhi tree, filled with sublime thoughts, unshakable kindness and compassion, amazing insights. No, actually when the Buddha described his taking his seat under the Bodhi tree, he described it as taking his seat in the midst of a mind prone to fantasy, to aversion, to dullness, often lost in doubt and uncertainty. But what the Buddha does describe in that evening was his very deep commitment to sit with those experiences, to be upright, in the midst of those very, very difficult moods and emotions. He describes his willingness out of that commitment to really look the difficult in the eye and to come to know that these passing states of difficulty, of challenge, no matter how loud their voices, did not describe a place where he wanted to make his home. The Buddha's relationship with those voices, those moods, those states, those challenges, those obstacles was very, very clear. It was not one of resistance or pushing away or aversion, but a simple withdrawal of consent 
refusing to actually participate in their dance. When we hear the word noble, it is actually, in my mind, far more helpful to actually turn this into a verb and to speak about and to reflect upon what is it that ennobles our lives? What is it that ennobles the moment? What is it that ennobles our way of being in the world? Now, this quality of ennobling is, is very, very frequently referred to in this teaching and this path. And, and my own sense is that rather than just dismissing this as having nothing to do with us or feeling somehow this applies to other people and that we're not quite worthy of these descriptions, I think actually this whole sense of a question around what ennobles our lives and our practice can be very helpful, can be a very helpful way of almost reframing our path, um, reframing our practice. Because if we go back to that question that that I posed earlier about the value of reflecting on what we are doing here and what it brings, what brings us here, I think it brings us to a level of contemplation, a level of reflection that I I actually feel is often overlooked a little bit in this this path. You know, because we can get so kind of drawn to the sort of technicalities of the practice and doing it right and all of those things that sometimes we, we forget about this wider context and this wider framework and this process of inner contemplation which actually clarifies our own sense of direction. And although that clarity may be quite unique in many ways to each of you, I think if we were all to kind of speak about what it is that really draws us, what it is that really inspires us, we would find much universality amongst those longings. Do we not long to know also for ourselves what it means to live a life of dignity and poise? To have our words and our actions spring from a very authentic love and compassion? Do we not also long in our lives to know what it would mean to live a life free from fear? Do we not also long to find in ourselves the the roots and the source of an unshakable peace and freedom, to be the gatekeeper of our own well-being and to be the gatekeeper of our own sense of freedom. But it is more than that, this path, because this path is not just about an inner development or an inner growth. It has much to do with how we are in the world. You know, and do our longings not also include how to live in respectful ways with others, how to live in harmony, how to form relationships that are free from conflict, that are filled with with respect and with care, finding the courage and also the fearlessness in ourselves that allows us to meet the oceans of pain, the oceans of sorrow that exist in our world. Awakening, as the Buddha described it, was not some single flash moment. 
you know, not necessarily some great mystical illumination. It wasn't a question of transcending the world, but of transcending confusion and delusion and suffering. The Buddha put it, as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. When the Buddha actually described his own understanding coming to fruition, he actually described it as he saw unshakably and clearly the way things actually are. Now that sounds simple, doesn't it? Because we all imagine we see the way that things the way they actually are. I think what the Buddha was speaking about was a slightly different domain. He said in that depth of understanding, he saw an unshakable way, the way things are, all things are born of conditions, are held within a process of change, and are empty of independent self-existence. And he said, in coming to know that so clearly and so deeply, in his bones, that he also came to know the end of struggle and anguish. The Buddha described that as awakening, as awakening to a great, a vast freedom, but something else a great, unshakable inner sufficiency that saw the end of all lack, that saw the end of all beliefs in insufficiency. So actually, although in many ways when the Buddha speaks about awakening, it sounds so straightforward, but actually it's a fairly radical and fairly profound change of heart. And as many of you know, when, Buddha, when the Buddha came to actually try to put into language his understanding. He put it in the language of the four ennobling truths. That yes, in this life there is disquiet. There is unsatisfactoriness. There is struggle. There is at times pain. There is an origin. There is a cause. There is a source of the emotional and psychological distress that we can experience in this life. And there is a possibility of its ending. And we are invited to walk the path to that ending. And the the Buddha said that for everyone, for anyone, who actually undertakes the same journey, comes to the same understandings, that so changed, so radically altered his life, he said that this is a way to discover an inner nobility to find for ourselves an end of struggle. Now, this is not an ideological statement. The Buddha has never invited people to subscribe to beliefs or opinions. He was not a teacher of abstract ideas. He was not a teacher of abstract philosophies. Actually, what the Buddha said is, he said, take this, you know, examine it for yourself. Explore it for yourself. See if it is true for yourself. And even the Four Ennobling Truths were certainly not put out as some sort of um, ideology or belief system. But he actually said, you know, suffering is to be understood. Its causes really are to be investigated and, and relinquished. Its end is to be realized. 
And the path, of course, is something for us to walk. That to do this will bring an unhesitating compassion, an unshakable freedom. So this evening I basically uh, want to look at the um, second ennobling truth. The causes of distress, the causes of conflict, the causes of confusion and sorrow. I want to look at the paradox of desire. The way that craving, what we call craving, wanting, is a servant of a belief in insufficiency. And the way in which craving, as we speak about it, rather than calming or easing that sense of inner insufficiency, only strengthens it. Now, the word desire, I think, is a very interesting word because, you know, I hear people kind of like dissing all desire, you know, like if you're a really noble person and you're really on this path, you don't want anything at all. But try and get through your day without wanting anything at all. Um, You probably won't even get to breakfast. (laughs) But often desire is is a word that's often heard and placed upon it, this kind of blanket condemnation of any form of longing. And I think that's a great misunderstanding. It can almost be a kind of debilitating understanding. So I'd like to unpack it a little and just look at some of the dimensions of desire. Those that are helpful to us and those that are not helpful to us at all. So first I'd like to look at the desires that actually are helpful to us. And one of the criteria of a desire that can be helpful to us is that it can be answered. It can be answered. So there's a kind of practical, uh, whole domain of practical desires that actually really are almost navigation systems for getting through our day. Um, you know, if you, if you saw a poisonous snake on the path, it's a good thing to want to get out of the way. Um, your body sends you messages of hunger and thirst. It's a helpful thing to be able to listen to them and to respond to them. If it pours with rain, you know, you want to put up your umbrella or to take shelter. There's a desire to protect the well-being of the body, the desires to protect the well-being of, of people that we care about. These are very momentary desires. They're very, they're very relational desires. You see that. They're very relational to, to conditions. Um, they arise and they pass. And the big thing is that they leave no residues. Okay? They can be answered and they leave no residues. After you've put up your umbrella in the pouring rain, you do very rarely spend the next three hours beating yourself up for having done so, you know, or doubting it, or no, why did I do that? No, I shouldn't have done that. It leaves very little narrative behind it. You notice that? It's a desire that can be answered. It arises and it passes, and it doesn't leave those kind of footprints of, of story in, in their wake. 
Now there's another realm of desire which is called chanda. This is a realm of desire of, of wholesome or what is actually called kusala, almost noble longings that are translated into action. And again, this is a dimension of desire that can be answered. These are the kinds of desires that bring us here. The longing to know greater kindness, the longing to to know greater spaciousness, compassion, the longing to be free from pain, the longings that are part of every great social and cultural and spiritual revolution, actually, over time. The end of apartheid would never have happened without this kind of longing, without this kind of desire. Many of the changes that have taken place in our cultures that really aspire to respect people would never happen without this kind of desire. These are longings to be honored. Their desires to be respected, their desires often to give voice to. In many ways, these wholesome, these, chand- these, these kusala chanda that are so important in the changes in our world um, are often simply not given enough voice. We, because they are the longings that ennoble our lives, but they also kind of give a shape and a direction to our path. And we actually see how easily that sense of aspiration, these kusala longings, these kusala desires, noble desires, how easily they get drowned out by our daily preoccupations, our habits, our uh, our illusions. How often all of that busyness in the mind creates a kind of amnesia, creates a kind of forgetfulness about what we're doing in this life. What's important to us, where we are going, what we attend to. In many ways, these kusala longings, desires also, they can be quite challenging. Because if we really listen to them and we really answer to them, this invitation to radically change our heart, I think often is also an invitation at times to radically change the nature of our lives. Because these are the longings, if we simplify them, if we clarify them, these are the desires that often take us out of the palace of our illusions. Think back to the story of Siddhartha. He didn't have a bad life, by the way. You know, by all accounts. It was pretty pleasant. Mostly got what he wanted. Um, Had the much easier life than many of us might have in this life. What is it that took him out of that palace, not only the geographical palace of his role, his status, his position, but the the palace of his illusions, that somehow all of that could somehow protect him from the unsatisfactory, protect him from change, protect him from death. It was actually the following of those noble desires that led him out of the palace of his illusions. It is a question of what what are we dedicated to? 
with Duema's deeply value, because without these longings clear in our hearts, translated into intention and embodied in our lives, it's so easy to become lost in forgetfulness and just swept along day by day in the tide of doing and hoping and obsessively arranging the conditions in our world as much as we can to protect ourselves from the unpleasant or the challenging or the disturbing. We often do that, and I'm sure many of you have found in your life that we can be so immersed in all of that, that kind of forgetfulness, and then every now and again something comes along that really almost in a way wakes us up. Sometimes it's a great loss. Sometimes it's a disappointment, an unexpected illness, a separation from someone we deeply care for. And very often those moments create a moment of pause when we actually really recognize that the only certainty in this life is that we will die. And that the whole pathway of this kind of noble, these kusula desires, is to remind us to value the manner of our living above all else. These kusula, these noble desires, are here to remind us about what is possible. In a way, this is really the promise. I've always understood this to be the promise of this teaching. That the seeds of great compassion, the seeds of great kindness, the seeds of great wakefulness lie within each of our hearts, awaiting our cultivation, our tending to them, our caring for them. That the possibility of profound freedom and dignity and balance lies within each of our hearts. But it is also so important that these these longings, these wholesome longings, are translated into something more substantial than hopes or idealistic thinking, but into a path that ennobles our lives. The perhaps the the real, the, the real heart of these kind of wholesome, these noble longings is that they are the desires that lead to the end of desire. They can against be again be answered. In the Dhammapada, there's a wonderful teaching. The Dhammapada is one of the early, much-loved texts of the Buddha. There's a wonderful teaching that says that all that we are now is a result of all that we were And that all that we will be tomorrow will be the result of all that we are now. I find that particular those particular lines in the Dhammapada particularly powerful because it so grounds us in this moment. I mean we see the truth of it that all that we are now is the result of all that we were. I mean, when you sit here and listen inwardly and look at what goes onwardly, don't you just see the voices of all of the people in your life and all the experiences in your life kind of flowing through your mind, coming to shape our belief system about who we are right now. And we sort of imagine that because this has been our past and our history, that this is just going to continue and will be our future. 
But actually, what the Buddha really stressed, it doesn't really matter how long a history something has. It does not then meet, translate into being an equally long future. That all that we are, all that we will be tomorrow or even the next moment will be the result of all that we are now. And that is where this path is so centered. To see that every moment that we are awake, every moment that we are investigating, every moment that we are curious, every moment that we're actually here, somewhat wholeheartedly, turns this moment into a potential turning point. Inviting us to look at where we are making our home, moment to moment. Are we making our home in busyness? Are we making our home in calm? Are we making our home in anxiety? Are we making our home in simplicity? There is nothing predetermined about any of this. Are we making our home in doubt or are we making our home in confidence? There is the, the realization of this path does not lie in some unattainable breakthrough moment, but there's something much more immediate about bringing about, in bringing about the end of suffering and struggle. Remind, reminding ourselves again and again of how do we liberate the moment? How do we liberate the moment we are in? from confusion, from impulsiveness, from habit, from distress, from conflict, from struggle. When I teach over these many years, I continue, really do continue personally, to be deeply awed by the changes and transformations that people can experience in the very short time of a retreat. The, the shifts that can be made from contractedness to spaciousness, from agitation to ease, from confusion to understanding. It's not as if we come on a one-week retreat and everyone finds a solution and the answer to every life question or dilemma. That's not the expectation. But something very profound can happen in changes of heart, but through people's own willingness simply to take care of where they are. To listen and to take care of where they are and to learn to walk a different pathway. There's a small piece of a poem by Naomi Shihabnai which really reminds me of this. It's a good piece. She says, when someone invites you to a party, remember what parties are like before answering. Walk around feeling like a leaf, knowing you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. And it's also deciding what to do with our attention, what to do with our mindfulness. Now, there's another dimension of desire which is, is, is deeply considered to be a very wholesome, very ennobling desire in the Pali, the word is Vega. It speaks about a spiritual urgency. It speaks about a spiritual urgency. 
I don't think this is necessarily a stranger to all of us because this sense of, of, of the urgency of reaching out, the urgency of waking up, the urgency of taking care of can come through many, many different mediums in our life. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we can watch TV mindlessly, you know, for hours. But then sometimes you come across an image, you know, of a, of a, a child desperately hungry or, or, a, or a situation of, of terrible, terrible conflict and pain. And there's almost that moment of just stopping. It's like there are no words. Sometimes you see it in relationships when you, you some your relationships when you encounter someone in such pain and such distress, and you know it's not solutions and formulas and prescriptions, but that that immediacy, the intuitiveness of reaching out. It is also very felt very strongly in this path that the sense that there is no time to waste. We do not know the moment of our death. We do not know the manner of our dying. But we can know the manner of our living. And we can begin to feel that sense of urgency. It's not haste. It's not kind of intensity. I think of it more as a kind of, of, of dedication, more as a kind of commitment to be awake. This too is actually a desire that can be answered. We can open, we can serve, we can embody compassion. We can develop and cultivate a mind and a heart that is an ally. So now we're done with the good news. I'd like to do the more difficult piece of desire. <laughs> and to look at the realm of desire that really has no end. It doesn't have an answer. And the word in Pali is tanha. A best translation is unquenchable thirst. Think of that, what that would be like for you. To have a thirst that is unquenchable. That no matter how much you drink, the thirst remains. And we see that tanha, this, this, this insatiable, this this pervasive, this almost compulsive wanting, rather than ending suffering, it creates more. And this is kind of one of the weird things about craving, is that we often use craving to try and bring an end to suffering, when actually in the Buddhist teachings it's expressed very clearly that it's this very craving that causes suffering. Have you noticed that in your own life? You know, like you're bored, you know, I'll go to the fridge. You know, I'm going to use craving to try and end the suffering of boredom, you know. I'm kind of restless and agitated, you know. Oh, where's the TV, phone a friend, you know. I'm trying to find, use craving to try and end suffering that may actually be caused by craving. It's good to register the kind of uh, close feedback loop of that. Tanha, in my understanding is the messenger, it is the embodiment, is the servant of an underlying belief system. And that underlying belief system is one of insufficiency. Inner insufficiency. 
And every time that we kind of go down the avenues of craving, we are digging the pit of that belief system of insufficiency just a little bit deeper. If we really want to see the end of struggle and conflict in our life, then I think we have to really, really question this whole compulsion of craving because it is what binds us to suffering and struggle. Rumi put it wonderfully. He says, who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in myself. I should be suspicious of what I want. (laughs) It is a good place to start. I should be suspicious of what I want. Craving, if we want really to see the end, not only of our own emotional, psychological suffering, but actually much of the suffering in the world, and craving is something that deeply asks to be understood and released, it is really a radical change of our heart and our lives. It's an invitation to freedom. Mm -hmm. Releasing craving is an invitation to peace and to a sense of sufficiency and dignity. But we also really need to be, I think, quite honest about acknowledging the landscape of craving, to be able to feel it, to feel it when it's occurring, to feel the painfulness of it, not to have ideas about craving or as if it's something that happens to somebody else, but to actually have that honesty to actually feel the painfulness of being locked within a life or even a moment that is governed by craving. Because then I think we might be willing to actually begin to step out of its discontent. If we trace, you know, because there is a sort of methodology in craving, if we trace what happens in craving, we see that there's a very, very locked and very closed feedback loop system. Believing or sensing inwardly a sense of lack, a sense of insufficiency in the moment or in ourselves, our tendency is to turn away and to turn outwardly, to begin to search the world for, of things, of people, of experiences to answer that sense of lack. And it's not as if we're always unsuccessful. We do have momentary successes but they are only momentary. And they end, and then once more we become aware of that continuing disquiet, that growing hunger. And so once more go in search. It's a kind of more policy. You know, more sights, more sounds, more more sensations, more pleasant events and experiences, more food, more excitement. But actually what we see is actually that the, the insatiable nature of it that actually turns back and reinforces a sense of lack. It's tremendously agitated. It's tremendously agitated. I mean, actually, we can even see the sense of me as a kind of appetite, can't we? I want. 
<laughs> I want more. It's like that's how I keep myself going. Prowling the world and tying our happiness and unhappiness, our success or lack of success, to what we can get and what we can get rid of. Now, what the Buddha discovered, and actually what countless people in these pathways have discovered over centuries, is that when we can find really the willingness to step out of the fires of craving and discontent, when we can really find the willingness to begin to cultivate some stillness and calmness amidst these waves, cultivate some collectedness, as we are doing here in this practice, that as the practice deepens, as the stillness deepens, the quietude deepens, the calmness deepens, what we discover in our own hearts and minds is an inwardly generated happiness and joy, serenity and sense of sufficiency. It is why we keep asking people to turn up and to sit and to walk, not because we're a great admirer of rituals, but because this is the means to begin to calm. It's the means to begin to still. And lo and behold, you discover an inwardly generated calmness and happiness and joy and the sense that there is nothing missing. That has very profound implications for our lives. It, is, it brings very profound questions into how we live and what, and what we pursue and what we value. It, it brings actually that, that impetus and that motivation to actually allow that inwardly generated joy and happiness and peace to really deepen and to become unshakable. Because that inwardly generated happiness and freedom is not tied to getting something, it's not tied to getting rid of something. I mean, certainly in the world there is much that is delightful, you know, much that is lovely. But what we really discover in the practice is our heart's capacity to be delighted. Because actually we know in ourselves that unless that capacity is there, we could be surrounded by the most glorious nature and awakenings and be untouched. Inwardly generated. It's why so much emphasis is given in this practice to cultivating the path, to sit, to walk, the very simple things. Because that's where we begin to learn to taste the happiness of our own hearts. And in a way it's a taste of freedom. So the first dimension of craving is all about sensual pleasure. You know, more sights, more sounds, more food, more intensity, all that stuff. Not saying that sexual pleasure is wrong in any way, but as a substitute for inwardly generated happiness and freedom, it doesn't really cut the mustard, so to speak. Um, but it's fine, it's there. But to look at the difference between appreciating the pleasant and craving it. The second dimension of craving, which is really unhelpful, is a really weighty one. It's the craving to become someone. It's the craving to become the kind of person who has a certain kind of experience. It's not just about ideas about, you know, I want to be an actress, or I want to be a great author, or I want to be a trapeze artist. You know. It's the craving to become a certain kind, the kind of person who has a certain kind of experience. Pleasant experiences, flattering experiences. 
I think in our culture we call it self-improvement. We're going to re- reach, move towards a state of perfection. You know, we want to be the kind of person who's admired for being kind of perfect. And it, maybe this is completely foreign to you, but now this is not the same as these wholesome and skillful longings for for creativity that get realized, that get embodied in our lives, that is deeply pressured. It's about the craving to become lovable, the craving to become acceptable, the craving to become worthy, which again is all tied into the same belief system of not being lovable, not being worthy, not being acceptable, not being good enough. So the craving gets, surra- gets focused upon finding identity, states, experiences, achievements, that which tells us that we're good enough. But that's an ongoing, often an ongoing abandonment inwardly. The craving to become, I think, is often an ongoing abandonment inwardly, abandonment inwardly of our own capacities to find acceptance, patience, tolerance, compassion, kindness for all that we are and all that we experience. This is an interesting one, this craving to become, and I think it's got some telltale clues. I think some of the telltale clues lie around praise and blame. For example, if we're very tied up in this craving to become, you know, someone worthy, acceptable, lovable, all the rest of it, probably going to be very susceptible to blame. Someone says something, we interpret as being unkind or as a put-down. Oh, and it lingers. Oh, it lingers. We often get very good at self-blaming in this craving to become system. We get very good good at self-blaming, self-judgment. I'm not good enough. We don't even need anybody else in the world to tell us because we're so busy busy telling ourselves, actually there's hardly any room anyway for anybody else to find any space in there. But it's often a self-blaming. It's often tied up with this kind of ideology around perfection, not good enough. Um, So blame, praise, well, we may not be so good at that, extending that inwardly ourselves, but what somebody else offered it to us, we hoard it. You know? We hoard it. Oh, yes, that person really, really thinks highly of me, you know, and likes me, and they're the one I'm going to be around. There's something terrible about this kind of craving because it leads us to be a sort of beggar in our lives, seeking for approval and affirmation from others the kind of approval and affirmation of others that is sometimes then even hardly even believed because it, that approval and affirmation, even when we get it, is hitting this underlying belief system that doesn't even accept it or believe it anyway, that still says, I'm not good enough. But it's a, it's a difficult one because it makes us conform, makes us become obedient, makes us mold ourselves to other people's expectations, makes us actually seek to live in a way that is shaped by the needs or the ideas of others rather than any sense of, of inner authenticity. I can actually hardly think of any other um, impulse than the craving to become that is so detrimental to freedom. Because it makes us so much at the mercy of the need for approval. And it's to live in fear, the fear of failure and the fear of rejection. 
So what do we do about this? <laughs> you know, this does have actually something to do with our practice. Because it's a story, isn't it? It's a story. A belief system is a story. We keep telling it to ourselves. Other people tell it to us. Every time it's told, it becomes a little bit more true, becomes a little bit more real. And what do we do in this practice? We learn to question our narratives, including our narrative of ourself. And actually, what we actually see is that the story can become so familiar. You know, many people say this and and, and report this in their practice when they start to listen inwardly. It's like it's got a life of its own, doesn't it? You get up in the morning, it's not like you get up in the morning, think fantastic day to be totally self-judgmental. But you no sooner got your slippers on and it started, you know, did I put them on the right feet? No, no, I look terrible in these slippers, you know, everybody's going to be looking at my slippers as I go. It's like it's got a whole life of its own. But actually what you start to see is the very habitual nature of these narratives is actually telling us us who we are. We're not telling the story. The story is actually shaping the belief system. The story is actually shaping the sense of me, the sense of self in that moment. That's kind of interesting one to look, to actually really question, am I telling the story of who I am, or is the story telling me who I am? It's quite good to decentralize this. We see that that story of, of, of insufficiency actually really rests a lot upon the whole climate of discontent, disquiet, agitation. So in the practice, we not only learn to cultivate a question in a story, we learn to cultivate the climate of heart in which the story can begin to calm. It's almost like selfing, craving, clinging, agitation. They're all threads of the same cloth. And if we pull, unravel any one of those threads, it's almost like we untie all of the knots. A third kind of craving, equally unhelpful, is the craving for non-existence, or the craving for non-becoming. Sounds strange. But this is a craving that robs our lives of nobility. Now, sometimes we encounter this in quite a moderate level, you know, a fairly conservative level. Just all the little flickers of aversion in the day, you know, want this to go away. Just want this to go away. Can be external, can be internal. It's have no tolerance for it. I just, I just want it to disappear. The desire to divorce ourselves from what is. The craving to divorce ourselves from what is. The fear of being overwhelmed. On a deeper level, the craving for non-existence, of course, is about uh, wanting to disappear, wanting to suppress, wanting to annihilate ourselves, wanting to conform. It can be a lot of agitation. Now, sometimes this craving for non-existence manifests in a kind of numbness, just not feeling, building up the kind of armor that we don't actually feel what is going on. Sometimes it's much, much more harsh, the craving for non-becoming in terms of inner, inner denial, inner rage. So we learn, we do learn in the practice actually. You know, because this practice is not something that takes place outside of craving. It takes place amidst the fires of craving. 
we learn to, to start to read the landscape. We learn, you know, because the Buddha often describes freedom as a freedom from the compulsions of craving. We learn, we learn to actually be a little bit more upright. Not to be so pushed, not to be so pulled, to know the landscape, to pick up the clues, to pick up the signs of discontent. And that's actually where we sit and where we stand. And it's where we learn to sit, where we learn to walk, where we learn to stand in the midst of this, with curiosity, with kindness, with compassion. We're learning to, uh, to develop that taste for freedom. As the Buddhist is often described, the freedom from the compulsions of craving. It's not easy. It's not easy. And it's not about rejecting or, 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 or blaming craving. That's another form of craving. It's actually beginning just to make room. to. We don't actually let go of craving, but so much of what we do in this practice is learn to cultivate and to nourish the conditions in which craving lets go of itself. What are those conditions? All of the things we talk about, of kindness, of compassion, of calmness, of spaciousness, these are the conditions in which craving lets go of itself. Check this out in your own experience, please. Notice, you know, what it, notice when there's a lot of discontent, pretty likely to be the moments when craving arises, isn't it? Notice the moments when there's more contentment, more ease, more spaciousness. There's not that much sense of the, you know, of, of craving arising. It's a sense of being able to rest within that. And those are the conditions in which craving releases itself, not because we're in charge of it, but also noticing that in those, in those places of calmness, contentment, ease, spaciousness, those are the moments where there's a greater sense of inner sufficiency, that there is not something lacking. Also knowing that those, those qualities, they are not accidents. These are the qualities we cultivate. These are, this is the path that we walk. This is the path to the end of, of suffering and the, and the end of the causes of suffering. It's also the path to, to uprooting this, this belief system, the ideology of insufficiency that keeps craving going. Learning to cultivate, learning to take the bewilderment out of this life, learning that the qualities that actually liberate the heart are actually the qualities that we do cultivate and tend and care for, moment to moment. Okay, so if we take just a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.